Welcome to the Founders for Good podcast, hosted by myself, Craig Turner. Join me as I speak to the most inspirational founders of four good startups, the people that are leading the way when it comes to solving the world's most pressing issues. I explore their journey as founders and their best kept secrets on how to grow a four good startup and how to hire top people. My hope is that this will inspire you to be part of the solution and do your bit in making the world a better place. Thanks for tuning in to the Founders for Good podcast. Anya Roy is the co-founder of Serona Health. Gynecological health is an area of healthcare that's been overlooked and underinvested in for decades. With lack of proper funding and research, it's led to people suffering. Shockingly, it's the norm for people with common gynecological conditions to go years without the correct diagnosis and treatment. So, enter Serona Health, an all-in-one healthcare platform that provides personalised and inclusive support to people for all of their gynecological needs. Serona's aim is to democratise women's health and give everyone access to the help they need. Anya shares why the current system is failing people, the lack of investment in gynaecological health, how Serena is solving this problem, plus her advice on building a tech for good business and hiring great people. Hey Anya, great to chat with you and have you on the show today. Hi Craig, thanks so much for having me, really appreciate it, what an honour. <laughs> of course, well, honour is mine. Um, so, always like to start off with a bit of like background on the guests. So I just wondered if for the listeners, you could share a little bit about your background and anything relevant that led you to working in like the healthcare space. Sure. Yeah. So um, anyone tuning in, I'm Anya Roy. I'm one of the co-founders of Serona Health. Um, Serona Health is a digital health company focused on gender inclusive care, but through the lens of life stages. Um, I'll tell you more. I'm sure like Craig's going to delve deeper into Serona Health and what we're building. But in terms of background, really, um, you know, I, I have a sort of like mathematics and, and bioscience background. Um, I initially started my career and in the deep dark dungeons of Goldman Sachs uh, and then um, and then sort of worked my way into life science venture capital which is where I caught the bug of sort of entrepreneurship and bringing innovation uh, to the hands of users and in my case patients uh, I worked in life sciences in particular uh, for a fund called IP group uh, based in London and then helped set up uh, sort of Illumina, which is the largest next generation sequencing company, um, their sort of uh, vehicle for investments in EMEA uh, in exciting startups. So that's sort of uh, my background. So it just made a very natural sort of like shift of using my professional expertise um, with personal interests um, in beginning uh, Serena Health. But that's a bit about me. Excellent. And um yeah, you, you may know, like, before we start talking about the actual kind of business you're running, we like to just explore the, like, problem space you work in and understand that a little bit more. So I was going to talk to you about kind of gynecological health more broadly. And, um, yeah, I, I don't most people would know, but it'd be good just to recap on, like, what gynecological health is. And, like, also you talked about, I think, like, life stages earlier, like how that the needs differ for a person, obviously, throughout their life as well. Yeah, sure. You know, so, you know, gynecology is basically, like, um, like an area of medicine that that uh, specifically focuses uh, largely on women's health diseases 
particularly, you know, on reproductive organs, etc. Um, but I just want to say, like, maybe women's health is potentially not the most inclusive term, neither is gynecology. So we need to come up with a better term um, where we're looking at, you know, trans and non-binary people as well um, who require these sort of um, uh, services. Um, but but, but uh, largely, you know, like when we think about um, gynecology and why there is a reason for looking at life stages is I can I can potentially tell you uh, the relevance of doing that from my perspective as a founder as well. Um, we've tried to look at you know the verticalization of uh, gynecology and what we've seen is it's very difficult because some of these conditions are so hormone driven so interconnected that it requires this life stage approach because you know as you go through several different life transitions your gynecological needs change um, so anything from menstrual health uh, you know in the early life stages to to perimenopause and menopause in your later life stage and the in-between around fertility and, and um, becoming a new parent. So that that that's the reason for, uh, you know, really looking at gynecology from a uh, life stage perspective and the relevance of it from, from those lens. Got it. And, and like in terms of um, how the system currently works, like if someone does have a gynecological health condition, what does a typical journey look like in terms of like diagnosis and treatment and, and linked to that? Like what are some of the common issues or challenges with how the system currently works? Yeah. So, I mean, like, you know, presently with the NHS, of course, there's huge waiting times. Um, so you would typically go to a GP who would refer you on to a specialist um, gynecological services. Uh, at the moment, that wait time is nine months. Um, wow. And a lot can happen over nine months. So, um, so it's it's actually really poor, um, and we're really in the business of trying to change it. But maybe if I can touch upon some of the current issues, um, Craig, like just to give the audience a flavour of like you know the the problems that we're dealing with. So, uh, endometriosis, for example, uh, often dismissed as period pain, it is not. For anyone who's listening in, it is not. Um, it is where, you know, tissue, which is similar to the lining of the womb, grows elsewhere in the body. Uh, it could even be in your lungs. So think about these cells which are programmed to bleed every month, uh, growing in other parts of your body. Hugely painful condition, has been dismissed as period pain for God knows how long. Um, and it takes over seven and a half years to diagnose an average and the first line diagnostic for it is a laparoscopic surgery a laparoscopic surgery is a keyhole surgery um, that clinicians um, do so just to give you a you know like a flavor of that like imagine waiting for a diagnosis for seven and a half years whilst you know, often being dismissed, being told that, you know, you're potentially absolutely making this up or you're crazy. Uh, this is in your head. These are sort of like the experiences of 
you know, people going through these conditions. Uh, for example, PCOS on average takes you two years to di- diagnose. You're at high risk of diabetes, cardiovascular disease, etc. Um, you know, fertility in the NHS, for example, it, they ask you to uh, try for a year before they actually, you know, provide a test to diagnose whether, you know, you're potentially um, you know, if your hormones are, are, are not optimal. And so therefore, like, this is super, you know, like, there are so many aspects that are incorrect uh, around sort of like the gynecological pathway. Um, even menopause, you know, there are 27 clinics for like, you know, millions of women going through menopause. How are they supposed to deal with that sort of workload? So, so I think, you know, um, there's so many things that need to change from, from, like a gynecological pathway, uh, the way the current system is set up. Yeah, 100%. It's shocking. And, and um, your, your first example of endometriosis, like a, a good friend of mine, exactly, pretty much as you described, took eight years to finally get diagnosed and constantly being told it was something else, something much more trivial. It affected her mental health. Um, and had to really fight to get that keyhole surgery you mentioned to actually get diagnosed correctly. And now, feels much more like relieved just knowing it is what she thought it was the whole time but say eight years yes it's it's yes. ridiculous um a lot of the time you know like I, I I always say patient advocacy has become sort of flavor of the season you have to go out there and advocate for yourself definitely and I was saying in terms of your view on on what's led the system to get to this point where it's so broken it takes years for people to get diagnosis um is that is that just typical what we know about the NHS it's just just completely maxed out and it's just lack of resources or is it like lack of like research and funding so I think I read a stat somewhere where it was like only two percent of publicly funded research goes into um is dedicated in the UK to like reproductive health which is a shockingly low amount um well I guess it's a combination of these all of these things yeah so um I think it's a combination um you hit the nail right on the head right like it's a combination of issues so first of all I want to start by addressing the fact that women were not even a part of clinical trials for the longest period of time so you know for about 30 years women were not a part of clinical trials because uh we have hormones um because uh you know we are able to um you know uh get pregnant etc so we were excluded from clinical trials um and so we have lost a wealth of knowledge because there are drugs that have come to the market in those 30 years which have not necessarily been tested on a specific demographic Um, and so we have a lot of work to do there Uh, second of all you know diversity in clinical trials uh, it's still absolutely such a big issue even today uh, that we're still struggling to um, to address it. So until we address those very specific things right at the you know start of the of the chain of events that follow research, it's very hard to change the outcome for for women today because it takes about ten years and a billion dollars to bring a drug to market, and if you haven't chosen the right patients, if your um you know if your data is not diverse, then 
how are you going to, with that magic pill, really uh, affect, you know, our, uh, a similar like number of lives? So that's one aspect. You know, the second aspect is definitely like sort of like policy and sort of like funding. Certainly from a government perspective, I think, you know, the UK government is is obviously like, you know, don't, don't want to rebuke it, but like it, they're, they're doing their best and there are um, vehicles like the Innovate UK arm that is funding cutting edge research, um, you know, whether it's universities or startups, etc. So they are doing good work, but we need more of it. So, you know, to put things into perspective, so for every $200 um, that is spent on diabetes, you know, endometriosis gets like, you know, about $20. So there's such a hundred, like, you know, like there's such a like 10x gap between funding. So if you look at that, and if you look at the numbers, though, the prevalence, diabetes, the number of women who have diabetes is the same number of women who have endometriosis. So, so you know, there's specifically, there's obviously like a pyramid of um, conditions, etc. Like some have been indexed for research and funding, some haven't. So really putting a spotlight on women's health, I think, from a research and funding perspective is important. And then the last part is education, right? I think, you know, from a um, from school, of course, like, you know, there is very basic sex education, which is taught. Uh, but really, I think we should bring sort of like boys and men into the conversation very early on around women's health, because women's health is a family issue, certainly not just a female specific issue. It's a family issue. It's a workplace issue. And so we need to address these things very early on. And so um there is a lot of work to be done from an education perspective, right from schools where you should be taught about menstruation, you should be taught about fertility, you should be taught about menopause, all of these things that, you know, women are kind of discovering sort of later, you know, in their lives or careers. It shouldn't be sort of something that's um, reactive, but like something that they feel like they've been educated early on and they have the right tools um, to to access help when necessary. So those are sort of like the three sort of fundamental things that come to mind. Yeah, completely makes sense. And uh, I guess in terms of like think about like solutions now, obviously anything to do with kind of like policy or government is generally quite slow moving, even though it's typically quite impactful. Um, so do you see like, I, I see where, where I talk to people about kind of health solutions, um, the, the kind of opportunity area really seems to be actually um the focus on employers more and like how they support their workforce and um yeah providing better health care whether that's physical or mental health care is, is that the way you can see this going that's actually a good opportunity to to have a bigger impact faster than, than waiting for like governments to do something about it yeah listen craig like you know at the end of the day like we can talk about what governments can do and you know what the nhs can do but you know they're, they're sort of larger sort of like beasts and they have like several different issues to tackle um you know again like i say like i really commend the work that you know these large sort of institutions do and uh, the nhs is a obviously been under so much pressure as well since COVID and, you know, seriously delivered for, for the country and its, and its population. But 
also there are cracks. And I think, um, you know, some of these things that we're talking about today are the types of conditions that slip through these cracks. And, and, um, and, and so like the startups then have like a really interesting role to play in an ecosystem. And, you know, you can see that in regulated markets, like even fintech. And sorry, I'm just going to make like a brief analogy. Don't worry, I'm not talking about fintech. <laughs> I will come back to, to healthcare. But, uh, um, you know, the brief analogy is sort of like finance, heavily regulated banks have been so archaic for a long time. Um, very sort of like very vanilla type of products, etc. But if you look at startups, you look at blockchain, you look at, you know, um, sort of like uh, how how like neobanks have changed um, sort of the financial industry overall, which is a highly regulated industry. You know, I really think healthcare will go through the same sort of evolution too, which is a again highly regulated market and should be. So I don't question it. Like it should be because you know we're working with vulnerable patients, you know, patient data, etc. So it should be regulated by all means. But I think there will be this leapfrogging. So, you know, where you go from something archaic to quite modern uh, and, and skipping the sort of like clunky in between sort of road where, um, you know, a lot of things don't work, etc. So, you know, I think sort of like digital health is really changing the landscape here. And I'm hoping that will take the pressure off the NHS and employers will obviously have like a really big role to play, um, particularly in women's health, because, you know, it's a, it's an economic um, sort of argument at the end of the day, because there are women leaving the workforce due to uh, women's health conditions. And what that means is uh, employers are losing like bleeding talent. They're losing um, sort of highly skilled, highly qualified uh, assets in the organization, which again, sort of like have an effect on the top line and eventually the bottom line. So, um, so, so I think there's certainly like a, you know, return on investment conversation to be had when it comes to employers. But from Serona Health's perspective, yes, we've gone down the enterprise route. So we specifically work with employers, insurers, and intermediaries. And, it's something that made sense from our go-to-market perspective um, because you know we're in a we're in a market where healthcare is is effectively paid for, even though we pay for it, you know, like some in a, in a roundabout way. Um, but uh, so we've not been used to paying for our own healthcare, which is a very different sentiment in the US. So, you know, I, I certainly think employers can really be flag bearers uh, for changing the women's health landscape. And, and we are working with, you know, companies who are doing that. So it's super fun and super cool. Yeah, I bet. And yeah, like you said, it's, it's common sense. And I'm sure we could probably spend another half hour to about all the reasons why employers <laughs> should be doing it. Um, but uh, probably a good yes. little segue <laughs> into um, chatting now about Serona, uh, Serona Health. So I know you gave like a brief introduction at the start, mm-hmm. but could you just give a bit more detail around um, yeah, what yes. Serona Health is, what you do? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, Serona Health is a digital health platform, i.e. an app uh, that provides a uh, 
life stage uh, women's health, but also like soon to be in a gender inclusive way um, and, and really helps with anything from right from tracking to telemedicine to to prescription delivery to community so really like you know looking at taking the entire patient experience and converting that into a digital format to make it like more personalized and also gamified um so you know when you use the serona app we reward you with coins uh for some of the positive behaviors that you take which then kind of really helps people change habits and really focus in on certain symptoms again personalized to their inputs and things that are plaguing them um so that's kind of serona health uh, in a nutshell but we focus on sort of underserved uh um life stage specific conditions so we're looking at things like endometriosis polycystic ovarian syndrome uterine fibroids um you know becoming a new parent um so you might have lactation issues or potential um infertility issues perimenopause and menopause so the whole gamut of 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 uh things and so because these conditions are so interconnected it makes sense to work on it as a one platform a unified approach uh to providing this one-stop shop um that that provides all of this to to patients so so that's around health in a nutshell yeah great description and um you know my my next question is really that like you described like huge level of complexity like heavily regulated loads of different um areas as you're supporting your users with how did you start out like did you have to pick like a particular condition and you focus on that first and to get like a working app um but yeah so what was the initial concept and how did you validate that in the early days Oh my God, Craig, like, I feel like you're opening Pandora's box here. Like, how did you start? I mean, oh, we, no. we started, <laughs> <laughs> we started with like, you know, an idea of like actually trying to create a medical device, like an actual device. Um, and, and that changed very quickly because, you know, the more we learned about the regulations and the amount of funding that requires, um, you know, we were like, we need to get to patients quicker. We need to collect better quality data quicker. And the best way to do that was through a digital health um, sort of like platform. Having said that, you know, like our, our medical technology sort of like dreams have not dissipated. They're just sort of like, you know, in the back burner sort of like brewing away. But having said that, you know, we we focused on endometriosis, um, which I first sort of like mentioned. Um, and it was because the pain point was so clear you know like really poor diagnose diagnostics poor treatment um and poor uh support after surgery so you know it was a very clear statement there wasn't even a mood point whether this was a problem or not it was a problem worth solving and so that's what we um kind of uh, focused on um, but the more we spoke to patients and the more we sort of spoke to clinicians because you have to look at like several different stakeholders the more we realized that this you know one vertical that we were trying to focus on and conquer uh, and specialize in was 
very interconnected. So endometriosis patients often also presented with polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, they then went on to have fertility issues. So like, you know, about 30% of those people uh, with endometriosis also had fertility issues. Um, and so they needed sort of like IVF treatment and things like that. Uh, and then, um, and then as a treatment, some were put put into surgically induced menopause or chemically indu induced menopause. So, you know, when you have that penny drop moment where you're like clutching your head, thinking, "Oh my god, I was trying to build something for one vertical, but soon realized that women's health is such a hyper connected um, sort of area that you just cannot." you know, verticalize it without really acknowledging the, you know, the, the aspect of the peripherals or like the things that it affects upstream, downstream of those conditions. So that's how we started, <laughs> but I don't know if that answers your question. It does. It does. Um, and hopefully it was like an exciting kind of revelation, like this is the tip of the iceberg and there's so much more we can do to be helping like our, our users. Um, in terms of the Serona app today um, and how it works, like if someone signs up today to use the app, um, I, I know that journey is going to take a long time and there's a lot of detail, but like just just to give like a bit more, um, yeah, um, context like that journey and how it works. Like, do, do people sign up and there's like an initial, like I guess like a some kind of like questionnaire or survey to get a gauge of where they're at, or do you find people sign up and they know quite quickly they want to talk to you about a particular condition? No, so we do ask very specific uh, questions, uh, which allow us to personalize it, which is why we call ourselves the Netflix of past life gynecology. So, you know, the idea is um, we, we really want to kind of like understand sort of a bit more about your medical history, family history, and then sort of like the life stage that you're at and demographics, etc. Based on some of these very like simple questions that you answer up front what you see on the platform changes. So your screen, I mean, your screen would definitely look different, but, you know, like uh, <laughs> someone who was going through menopause, uh, would their screen would be looking completely different to someone who was, you know, having challenges with fertility and, and conceiving. Um, and the idea for that is really because I think there are lots of healthcare apps out there. I think there's a huge amount of information. It's almost overwhelming for uh, patients to troll through that and really understand, like, what the next steps are. So we just break it down and we say, here are the things that are relevant to you based on your life life stage and based on some of the answers that you've given us um, and we really specialize in sort of like triaging patients um, you know right with symptoms uh, and we give them insights and we don't overwhelm them with these insights we just give them the top three things that we think are they should work on and we give them personalized insights to help improve those top three things because we think that it's it's about taking baby steps it's not like a monumental shift happens with your healthcare within you know day one it's about working towards like good good healthcare and good um, um sort of like habits and so we provide 
so we go from, uh, you know, tracking your symptoms and lifestyle data we integrate with wearables to then create those like top three things that you can work out when we provide those self-management tools and then sort of have like a health coach who will direct you to whether you might need a clinician or you need an at-home diagnostic test or what the next step should be. So basically your health companion that you have in your pocket at all times that you can sort of like write to and engage with um and then you know if there's a if there's something that you need to speak to from a medical perspective we have uh we're able to connect you with clinicians and there are at-home diagnostic tests where you can you know do these tests these are like either blood tests or swabs or urine tests or you know you send some of your spit like it really depends on this uh, yeah. uh on what we're measuring and then um, the idea is if the clinician prescribes you something and some in menopause, for example, if you decide to go down the HRT route, we actually deliver HRT to your doorstep. And so it comes like the journey is a full circle and you're able to speak to other people on the platform uh, about some of these very like sort of stigmatized topics without any judgment. It's a moderated platform, so no nonsense at all, but like, you know, specifically about your healthcare. But that's kind of like the patient journey. Uh, but I also want to caveat that digital health cannot on its own solve all problems. And we're very aware of that, which is why we partner with people. We refer people on um, when they need to go back to the NHS or they need scans or they need in-person care, which we're unable to provide. We do referrals. So, um, so, so that's yeah. kind of really about connecting the entire patient journey together to make it convenient, to make it very accessible. I think that's sort of like some of the key things that we're trying to address. If you're listening and thinking, I'd love to work for a company like this, then you need to go to www.jobsforgood.io, where they have the best jobs in four good companies. From climate change to social impact to green transport, you'll be able to find the perfect job for you. Trust me. Check it out, www.jobsforgood.io. Now back to the podcast. Yeah, yeah, I really like it because it's yeah, it's just like so it's like plugging those gaps and like a supplementary service to, to what exists and, and what they will need at certain points. But actually, a lot of stuff where it's not working very well from the current system, you're you're really addressing that gap. Um, I really like what you said earlier as well about the like bite bite size kind of like top three bits of advice because when I've used some health apps before. Um, the personalization is quite mixed, but also you sort of feel overwhelmed with information. They just throw random stuff at you and it's really hard to actually take that and use it as like actionable advice or yeah, information. Correct. It's like, what do I do? Sure. Like, you know, these are all my problems, <laughs> but what do I do or what can I do about it? And we, and we really thought about it like from a very human perspective, right? Like as in, if you did, we give them three actions that they can take you know, within that day that would, you know, or that week, if, if they've been tracking to say, these are things that you can do. These are things that you can change within the, the current lifestyle that you lead um, that should have a positive uh, outcome or better um, sort of, or to improve your well-being. Yeah. And then um, I guess one area where you sometimes do see criticism leveled at like kind of the like employee, uh, like healthcare related service offerings is around like data privacy and uh, getting the balance right between 
obviously employees shouldn't be able to see certain things and there needs to be a level of anonymity, but there's also an opportunity to provide some good data to employees, which allows them to make better decisions. How, like what, with Serona, like what, what kind of information do employees have access to and where do you strike that balance between like employee and employer? Yeah. So, you know, at the end of the day, um, uh, when we, when we look at, uh, any sort of data, there has to be a consent process. So, so we have a very uh, specific consent process, you know, when users sign up, sign up to the platform to ask if we can use their data for research purposes. And we don't sell data. We just not, we're not in the business. That's not our business model and it never will be. Um, so we're not in the uh, business of selling sort of like patient data. We just want to use it for research purposes. And so we ask for consent to research. You can provide it. You don't have to provide it. It doesn't, you know, change the experience per se from a patient perspective. But the fact that we asked, uh, you know, is huge because when we ask, so far we've got like around 97% of our users have consented to research, which is brilliant, right? Like I think they want to move the field forward. I feel like if we, if I was to do the same thing, but in a very creepy way, mm-hmm. not asking yeah. them, I think I would have like a bunch of patients that would like really kick off, um, which is right. And it is sort of like, totally understandable and so um really sort of like addressing consent early on i think is important from a um from an employer perspective you know you do have to have like this chinese wall like even with private medical insurance um you know my um my uh, my emp- uh, my employer or my rather my ex employer would not be able to see like the details of my consultation or you know etc they're only able to see aggregate level data and that's the same principle with Serona we provide sort of like uh, MI data which is to really talk about sort of usage we talk about sort of like health risks in the organization etc but there's, there's no sort of individual level data that's provided it's all done at an aggregate level and um, that way you can really from a patient privacy standpoint be very clear because you know this is sort of aggregates and so none of the data can relate back to a patient per se but even that you know again we ask for consent so I think consent is something that's really important. Um, and, you know, we've gone through a lot of like regulatory stuff. So um, we are CQC registered. Um, so we're regulated, um, you know, by the same body that the NHS is. Um, we are ICO registered. We, you know, we follow GDPR uh, guidelines. We're ISO 27001 certified. So we've gone through like a barrage of like regulatory stuff. Because you have to do these things to gain a like patient trust, but also know that you're uh, doing right by um, by them. Because again, we're in a regulated industry handling very very sensitive data. Um, having said that, you know, like we we took the stance of additionally going. Uh, through sort of like certification as a medical device. So we're a software as a medical device. Again, everyone said, don't do it. Like, you know, just stay in well-being. Just, you know, don't bother. It's an additional cost. It's just a lot of work. And it is all of those things. Um, but it also means 
you know, we signal to the industry that we will do what it takes to kind of do it, to build this the right way. Um, you know, we are interested in making sure that we use some of this data to build like the next set of products or services on the platform. And so as long as we can commit to, um, to our, um, to, to our patients that, we are in the business of protecting their data, but just providing them a better service, then we're able to, you know, keep up that that bargain. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think obviously consent number one is key, and then two, transparency. Like, I think people are fine if they know how the data's been used, but it's when, like you said, it's like the creepy, weird stuff that goes on. They don't know how it's been used that they get, um, <laughs> get, get yeah. obviously annoyed by. Um, uh next gonna to chat to you a little bit about funding so i believe you've fairly recently raised um seed rounds and i just wanted you know in terms of funding like what that's going to allow you to do with the business and, and like what's next for serena over the next year or so yeah you know we're super excited super grateful um you know we had like the you know they always tell you about the stat right like only uh less than one percent of women uh raise more than a million dollars in funding so you know like it was just feels like the odds are against you in some ways but um yeah so we've raised a few million uh in in funding um it's not been announced yet but you know it's just something that we're just trying to get on with building the company. Um, But uh, I think in terms of, you know, maybe if I took a moment to actually sort of like recognize that a little bit, um, that will really help us sort of, you know, uh, serve some of the commercial contracts that we have, build our organization a bit more. You know, we're really building out our commercial research and tech team further. Um, so we want to spend the funding on, on on doing that. We're putting together some super exciting partnerships with a range of stakeholders, including universities and like sort of like corporates, et cetera. So it just help us fulfill some of like the commercial traction we've got. It's a good problem to have when, you know, you're, you have like commercial traction and now you just need the the money to be able to execute on a deal that you've signed. So that's definitely something that our investors saw the promise in. Um, but I, I want to, I really want to touch upon the fact that, you know, fundraising is just not for the faint hearted <laughs> at all. Um, but also at the same time, like, you know, don't give up hope because I think, um, you know, we were discussing this uh, in uh, in the Y Combinator um, sort of like chat room uh, and the average like number of no's you'll hear to get one yes is 70. So you have to kiss a lot of frogs basically wow, yeah. uh, along the way. So, so, so yeah, not for the faint hearted, but keep going. Yeah, a huge kudos because from what, what I've heard from founders is especially the last, like over the summer, it's been incredibly tough, like tougher than normal to to, to raise money. So you've done it, I think, in the most challenging conditions as well, <laughs> uh, which should be recognised too. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, you know, there's always like this, you're like, oh, wow, you know, you've managed to do that um, during that kind of time which is super exciting, but it also speaks to the credibility of the business and my team, you know, like my team are fantastic. You know, I call them the 10 X people because, you know, they're, able, they're workhorses, you know, they're able to produce such high quality work. Um, and for us being such a small team, we're a team of 14, but like really punchy 
pushing way above our weight. So I have a wonderful team to to thank. So wouldn't be able to do it without them at all. Nice. And we're going to talk a bit about the team and hiring later on. <laughs> um, yeah. My sure. final bit on this section was just <laughs> asking you, um, you know, looking much much further ahead, like what what what's the what's the dream for Serona Health? Like what what do you hope it can become? Yeah, you know, like I, I think Chantal and I, well, you know, Chantal is my co-founder. I think what we really wanted to say is like from day one, we said our goal was to democratize um, sort of like women's health and really create access. And I think one of our goals is if we can get up to 100 million women sort of globally, then I feel like we've taken a step in the right direction for sure. So that is a huge dream of ours, you know, to be able to unlock sort of like women's health globally in so many different markets where where it's not well served. Um, and also like taking, even if we make uh, a step towards taking the stigma away from some of these conditions to them becoming mainstream conversations, you know, just like you talk about heart health, the way you talk about diabetes, if you manage to take the stigma away from women's health and we do that through the Serona platform, then I feel like we would have made some, made a massive difference. I mean, obviously, you know, you never know what the future holds. Um, but I, I think as long as we're delivering high quality care, to the people that need it the most in the moments that you know where when they need need it the most then I feel like we've kind of like you know um yeah effectively like got to the got to where we wanted yeah no I I, I love that vision and, and like as a, a father of two girls I truly hope that especially that part around removing the stigma and it's almost like this taboo subject that it's awkward to talk about people feel funny about I, I would love for that to be something that's just spoken about openly and, and my girls can grow up in a world where that yeah they know uh, and those around them don't have any like ignorance around this topic yeah. so uh, that's yeah, yeah. <laughs> massively Absolutely. supporting you in that yeah thank you um and then to talk a little bit about you, yourself actually and, and like your journey as a founder um you, you just mentioned a minute ago that you co-founded the business with Chantel um I just wondered like what's what's your advice actually for others when it comes to like firstly finding the right co-founder and then secondly like having a good working like productive relationship with your co-founder yeah yeah um sure you know like I was very lucky because Chantal and I were classmates at Cambridge University so you know I'd known her for a while um you know we were classmates but also like flatmates holiday buddies you know like in the frame, same friendship group etc so you know I've known her and we know how we work um so I was very lucky but I think if you were to go out and sort of like find a co-founder and if I didn't know her then you know this is what I'd follow which is you know you have a a skill set um and you need to find a co-founder who complements that skill set but also someone that you actually really enjoy sort of like spending time with because it's a very long journey um and you know it's a it's a joke that we actually spend more time with each other and like on a flight and you know like at work than than actually like our families right so so you really need to like each other like yeah and and I think half of the issues really from a from a you know 
sort of company perspective is when co-founders are not clear and they're not communicating. And, and so I'm super grateful, you know, because I was so lucky to, to kind of like be building a company um, that matters to us, you know, personally and, and that, you know, I get to do it with one of my best friends. So, um, so yeah, super, super lucky. Nice. Yeah. And I didn't realize you two were that close like previously, but um, yeah, that, that's some really good advice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, but like, you know, that's not to say we don't have conflict, right? Like, so Craig, like, I don't want to say to like, you know, like, it's not rose tinted glasses. Yeah. It doesn't mean that we don't have conflict. Sure. Like, you know, but there's a, there's a respect, you know, about how we sort of like work with disagreements, how we sort of like, um, sort of, you know, complement each other when I have a bad day or when she has a bad day, like, how can we look, look out for each other? And those are like fundamental fundamental things that you should talk about and I think we've talked about you know our goals for the business like what would make us happy like what really drives us sort of personally as people and and so how can we you know fill each other's cup you know when we can't fill it ourselves so like those are things that we talk about um and to be just kind and compassionate and have the same values um I think those are important and I think you know, we talked about this very early on, but, you know, people who were in the business of like, um, we're, we're sort of like running after like, like the legacy of change, right? Like we're, we're, we're in the business of wanting legacy rather than currency. I think if you're really just focused on sort of like currency, like do, do something else, <laughs> like you don't have to do uh, tech for good, you know, like you just do, do something else. And because like running a startup, if you're just chasing the money, it's just, a, like, you know, the, the kind of probability is so low, um, but also B, like, you know, founders don't earn a lot of money. Like, I want to, like, bust this myth. Like, you don't earn a lot of money whilst you're building. So just go chase something else, you know, like, go 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 into private equity and, like, you know, get a nice bonus. So, um, so yeah, do something else. Definitely, yeah. I don't know many founders in the other days of building that <laughs> – that are doing it for the financial reasons um and something you kind of touched on a little bit earlier um and what i want to explore was the sometimes the tension like when you're when you're building a business it's um impactful it's like there's there's a there's a real positive impactful mission there it's, it's tech for good um sometimes like your vision and your values will sometimes clash with like commercial decisions and i just wondered like along the way so far if there's any like commercial opportunities you've, you've had to say no to maybe because they actually didn't align with your values and, and what you want the business to be and, and that legacy you talked about yeah i mean you know at the end of the day i think um the the kind of work that we do is is very hard to kind of say like you know this is a like this is just because this is tech for good uh you know that there is no sort of like um ROI for example but having said that you know there are some businesses where we think they don't match with sort of our values at all so you know there if there are companies that are doing you know, environmental damage, you know, if they're, uh, you know, doing things that directly sort of affect healthcare um, or, or, you know, conduct their practices in a way that is not right for us, then we just choose not to work with them because at the end of the day, the commercial partnership will never uh, be fruitful 
because we're on we're on two separate pages we're focusing on like very very different goals um so we do have a way to sense check like these are types of companies that you know don't make sense for us to work with um but overall like the work that we do you know like if you're supporting women's health you're effectively supporting family health you're supporting economic growth and health so um so there are very few cases but there there are these borderline cases where we think okay you know like uh these are types of businesses or commercial sort of like activities that we don't necessarily want to align uh with ourselves having said that you know like i don't think i've had like any necessarily like a challenge where like a huge um commercial transaction is you know and and huge commercial tr- transaction does not equate to social good because it's embedded within our key sort of metrics itself so we sort of measure like social impact through the number of patients that we support the number of patients that we help the number of people that we diagnose earlier than intended than the national guidelines so you know there are very few cases where i would say you know those to go head to head having said that i'll say this from a slightly different perspective which is when we go out and raise money there's this oh there there you know like oh that sounds lovely like that's cute isn't it that you sort of like do women's health like that sounds like a nice social thing to do um but i'm like i'm in the business of making money what are you on about <laughs> like, like what are you on about like i'm definitely in the business of making money but um you know my business is about creating social impact as well um money is sort of like you know something that goes hand in hand so um i really like i would really urge sort of like the investment sort of landscape to really stop kind of like um looking at tech for good businesses as not profitable because that's not true yeah i i completely agree with that statement like i i think more and more we're going to see rise of tech for good businesses because ultimately that's what uh, customers are wanting more and more from people and I think that's the way the market's going to go and ultimately if, if you can like you say inherently link your making money like creating revenue with doing good that's a win-win yes. for everybody um, so yeah <laughs> definitely correct yes yeah and, and and I think our customers have gotten so much more conscious Craig because you know they're asking you know whether we made a climate pledge you know like you know, a net zero pledge etc so they, they they're wanting to work with companies who care about the planet, who care about the SDG sort of goals, et cetera. So we're seeing that happen in our, in our commercial transactions. Good, good. And then, um, again, come back to kind of like removing stigma. I always like to ask the founders I have on the show about um, how they manage their own like mental health um, and well-being because it's an important thing we should all talk about. And I just wonder from your side, yeah, what, what works for you? Yeah, like, you know, I think you should do things you love. Like, you know, I think sometimes you get so stuck in sort of the uh, the 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 rut of like just running a business and having so much pressure coming at so many different directions. So you need to step away from something that you love professionally to doing something that you love personally. And that could be that could mean many things right so I'm like an outdoorsy girl so I love being in nature and so that makes me happy I've actually recently gotten into gardening so I mean god like uh, turning into my nan already um so so yeah um so uh, I love doing that I I fence 
so I go fencing. So, um, so it just, it's sort of like, you know, it's the discipline of like, you know, doing sports and, and sort of like having other things in your life um, that kind of like give you joy. I think that's how I sort of uh, manage my mental health. But having said that, I talk about mental health a lot with my family and friends. I'm very open about it. Um, again, like, you know, this is, a, again, part of the job that I do. We want to destigmatize these conversations. So the fact that you're able to say, today I'm not having the best of days. I don't feel you know, mentally like that, you know, like a hundred percent being able to communicate that is super important. And I do that with family and friends. So having like a trusted group that I can just be my fully, be fully like, you know, hundred percent sort of like who I am and authentic self, including my bad days, I think is really important. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I could not agree more. Um, and then the, the final section is just around kind of going back to, you said about, you know, you built this like team of 10 X people, um, as a recruiter, always like to chat to people yeah. about like their tips and tricks around hiring. So, um, yeah, I think it was 14 people, you know, hiring at the early stages, I think is the toughest stage to hire for you know, limited resources, small team, all that everything's against you. Um, so I just wondered like what general advice, it sounds like you've managed to hire some really great people. Like what, what's some, what's some good advice you'd give to other founders about hiring in like, you know, the kind of pre-seed stage? Yeah. So just to kind of caveat that I've also made that. <laughs> of course. Yeah. So like, you we know, not, not every decision <laughs> has been perfect. Like, so I, I want to caveat that. So, um, so when I've hired well, I think one of the key things have stood out, like the fact that they are connected with the, vi- uh, the vision and mission of the company, uh, the, the, the employees who really kind of, pitch to me based on like their vision and mission of the company and really sort of like understood and that drives them from within it's a problem that they want to solve those are the types of employees I feel like who stick it out for the uh you know like for 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 much longer and are and are internally motivated uh second thing is like unless it sounds really bad but try before you buy (laughs) if there is a way for you to like you know do some sort of like consulting work or like a small project with them etc like just for you to kind of get a sense of whether they're a good fit and even for them to like test whether you're a good fit just because someone you know likes working in a large corporate doesn't mean they'll not fit into a startup and vice versa so you know I think just being able to kind of like be open to the fact that you can try before you buy as I say is 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 nice if you have the opportunity and then there's something like that you cannot um you know potentially place but like sometimes going with your gut and I say that gut, your gut gets better with experience as well. So, you know, if there's something specifically telling you, like, this candidate may not be, like, the full package, but you see something in them, like, I think give give them a shot. Like, give them a shot to, like, prove themselves. And last, I always say this, higher slow, fire fast, is something that I learned kind of, like, in the hard way. You know, as a startup, you just don't have, a like the money and time. <laughs> so you know, if you so take your time to like hire, but like you know, go through like the references and do your due diligence. Ask them to do due diligence on you. So you know, the people that you speak with, like your investors, give them access to that so they understand the company. I always, when I hire, I get at least like 
almost half of the company involved in the decision making or like sort of like the hiring process at least so that they get a good idea of like the company that they're joining and whether this is these are the people that they're going to work with right so whether they'll actually enjoy working with them and and you know do those reference checks but like you know take your time to hire but if things are not going well, I feel that, you know, there's a lot of like, again, um, I've definitely been through it where I'm like, you know, I feel so kind of, I, I find that whole process so upsetting um, that, you know, you always feel like, oh, I'm a bit longer, a bit longer, big, bit longer, but, um, but it doesn't actually get better over time. I think one of the things that you see is there people, there is no, there's not a single employee that you think that it's not that they're bad. They're just not the right fit for your organization or the stage that you're at. So, and they'll be brilliant somewhere else. So you're doing a great disservice by just keeping them in a position and a role where they're not able to perform. Um, so just because they're not a good fit in your organization doesn't mean they are not going to be outperforming in another. So it's really about like what they're doing and the timing, et cetera. Um, so, so, you know, if you feel that something's not going well, like address it early on. And if it's still not going well, then, you know, like kind of part ways in an amicable way, but sooner rather than later. Yeah. Really, really good advice. And yeah, not that final. Craig, but you're the, you're- <laughs> Craig, you're the you're the guru in this, so I'll, I'll you know all the advice. I mean, whatever I've said, just erase the bits, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean that 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 doesn't make sense. No, I think that was all pretty pretty sound advice, and and definitely the fire fires. Like as harsh as it sounds, I, I, in my experience, better to make that decision quickly, and, and actually both parties are massively relieved after. Yeah. Like normally, the other person involved also is not feeling great, Correct. and there's a yeah. sense of relief their side as well once those conversations yeah. happen. Um, my other question was going to be around, um, you know, in terms of attracting talent to the business, um, you know, what, what do you think Serena does really well or, or what have you done that's that's really helped with hiring great people? God, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> like, seriously, I think, um, you know, I think you, you know, I think passion is something that, you know, that is so important like and we're so passionate about the business that we're building so I hope that it's somewhat infectious and so the people that we end up like speaking to through the interview process just get excited about the prospect of like building the company with us um you know that's something that we do well and every person in Serena is also a shareholder you know, because I think it's really important and I and I do this very early on because I feel that, you know, since we're they're taking a gamble, you know, they're kind of building, you know, like um building a effectively like a, a dream, right? Like working on a dream with me. Um, that I feel that they should have a part of the a part and say in that dream. And so, you know, they are they all have share options. Um, um, and I feel like it's the right way to incentivize, you know, really good talent to kind of come and work uh, in a company that, you know, may not be the, the Googles or the Metas of the world and, and how do you compete with them? So, um, and I think I've asked you this question so many times, Craig, like, how do I, how do I hire like the best talent with like limited everything? Everything seems to be limited. And, and I think sometimes we don't realize that people, people are like actually 
actually wanting things like flexibility. They value, um, you know, having a voice in the organization. They, they value the responsibility that a startup can provide. So, um, so I think, yeah, those are the things. Yeah, no, I, I, I think those are all really good, really good points. And I, I think, um, like purpose and mission is becoming a much bigger driver for people now. And, um, especially where I work, like product and products and tech, people have a lot of options. They have a lot of choice. They're in a very privileged position. So I think now actually yeah. the differentiator for a candidate is, can I spend my time doing something that I really believe in or I, I'm going to feel good about? And I think when they see businesses like Serena, they're like, wow, I could have like a huge impact on a big part of the population here and do something really yes. important. And and it comes out to that legacy thing you talked about earlier. So yeah, yeah I, I think <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Um, and then, um, yeah, I guess kind of wrapping ourselves up now, Anya, um, yeah, if anyone's listening in and, and, uh, would like to follow the Serona journey or, or like, uh, follow yourself, like where, where's best on social to follow you or the company? Yeah. So, you know, you can, you can obviously visit our website, which is seronahealth.com, uh, or you can follow us on Instagram as well. So our handle is, uh, Serona Health. Um, so, so yeah, so do follow our journey and we're on LinkedIn as well. We do a lot of work on LinkedIn, as you can imagine. So again, Serona Health is sort of like a handle on, on LinkedIn as well. Perfect. Well, yeah, look, I've, I've really enjoyed the chat today. I've learned loads um, and I just look forward to following the Serona journey myself. So best of luck with everything. Thank you so much, Craig. It's been so enjoyable chatting. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode and leave us a review. We're just getting started out, so it would mean a lot to us. This episode was brought to you by Craig Turner, produced by Jabril al and sponsored by Jobs for Good. Until next time.